Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Mark Shepard, author of Restoration Agriculture. As you might expect from this show, we start with his biography and background, work our way through a call to action for permaculture practitioners, and a need to be more realistic in our efforts, and finally wrap up this conversation by discussing Mark's work of Restoration Agriculture. Don't worry, though. This is the first piece that Mark and I recorded together, so there will be more on this subject to follow, including listener questions in parts two and three. And I'd like to thank everyone who has helped keep the podcast running. I can only produce episodes like this one and those that follow in this series because of your support. You allow me the freedom to schedule large blocks of time to have expansive candid conversations with interesting and engaging guests for the good of the permaculture community and beyond. If you value this show and these experiences, and I think you do since you choose to tune in, then please support the show. Go to www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support to find out how to become a one-time or ongoing monthly contributor. Now then, on to Mark Shepard. I'll join you afterwards with some thoughts and updates. If you could take a few minutes and give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we'll talk about your work with restoration agriculture. Wow, a few minutes for my biography. That's, uh, <laughs> that's asking for quite a bit. I'll just do like a super brief synopsis. I uh, grew up uh, in the 70s, 80s in uh, central Massachusetts, the place where I was born. Uh, we're just downstream from old, rundown industrial towns. And the big game whenever we would get in the car would be to guess what color the river is today, because sometimes it would be red, it would be blue, green, all different colors of the rainbow. Those were dyes from the chemical companies that they were just discharging into the river, so they would just uh, go away. My parents, my mom was a dispossessed dairy farm girl. My dad was the son of a uh, Maine hunting and fishing guide that uh, their parents came to Massachusetts during the Depression and World War II for employment. And uh, all while growing up, we had about a 10-acre, I guess nowadays would be called a hobby farm, uh, but it was just a house with a big backyard and woods. And they would always talk about, you know, how, how wonderful it was growing up in the woods or on the farm. We had a huge extensive garden. My dad was one of the few people in the area that knew how to make compost. And it was at the height of the hippie era when I was a little kid, all these long hairs would come to the house and my dad would teach him how to make compost and make raised beds and gardens and stuff like that. So I grew up with this real strong, you know, rural ethic, even though I was in the middle of uh, what rapidly became the suburbs, because by the time I was graduated from high school, we were surrounded by housing developments and McMansions all over the place. It was originally dairy farms and apple orchards where I grew up, but by the time I was in, in high school, you know, that was all gone. It was all, uh, you know, suburbia, hard and strong. And so, of course, I, I went to a good school to get a good education, studied mechanical engineering, got a job for a year and a half, hated it, hated the commute through 45 minutes of crazy traffic and wearing a necktie every day, you know, pocket protector, the typical nerd of the 1980s. So one day I quit my job, and on my way home from having quit rather dramatically, I was thinking to myself, I better 
come up with another plan here because just quitting your job isn't really a good idea when your whole family's expecting you to be this, you know, gloriously high paid, fantastically talented mechanical engineer. So I decided on my way home that I would study ecology. I'd, you know, study nature. So I went back to school to uh, Unity College in Maine, where I studied ecology and found myself graduated from Unity College with no job, no prospects, about $50,000 in debt, still dreaming and wishing and wanting to live on the land like I had always dreamed of. And I learned in a real hurry that a 22-year-old kid with $50,000 of debt, no job, no experience, has no credit rating, can't buy you know, real estate. The dream is like 30, 40 years away of slavery and doom. And I didn't like that. So I'd heard about the closing of the Homestead Act up in Alaska, and I hitchhiked up to Alaska and claimed five acres of property about 3,500 feet up the side of a mountain, 300 miles from town, five miles off the nearest road, and uh, built a little cabin in the woods there. And my sweetheart and I uh, lived in that cabin in the woods for eight years, gave birth to our first son, and it was while up there in Alaska that I really began to live, not just think about and read about, but to live and explore how is it that human beings can live on this planet and not destroy it. That was where I uh, bumped into permaculture for the first time. I trained in permaculture and eventually got my diploma from Bill Mollison and started teaching permaculture, mostly workshops, and I would be a guest teacher doing segments during a permaculture course. And it was in 1993 that I was teaching uh, the segment on forestry and trees and soils at a permaculture course in Colorado. When I had finally had enough with this line that I kept hearing is that with permaculture, we don't need farms. With permaculture, we'll grow all of our food in our front yards. We don't need these big farms. Farms are evil. You know, having profitable businesses because businesses and corporations are all evil. Permaculture, we don't need all of that. And it struck me as amazingly hypocritical that we would sit down and eat our meals of rice and beans after the instructors had bashed farms and farming. So when I had the floor talking about trees and forests and soils, I basically said that, well, what we really need to do now is make permaculture farms, not just permaculture suburbs in city urban landscapes, but to actually produce staple food crops for real for human beings to eat. There are carbohydrates, proteins, and oils. We need to figure out what plant communities to imitate and how to grow these three-dimensional perennial ecosystems and derive our food livelihood, medicine livelihood, fuel livelihood, and economic livelihood from those systems. And that's kind of what kicked off the New Forest Farm Project in that there were two other guys at that permaculture course who were also excited about that idea. And the three of us went in together on a piece of property in Wisconsin where none of us had ever been before. So short and long of it, my wife and myself, two dogs and an infant son, found ourselves on an abandoned corn farm in southwest Wisconsin from the mountainsides of Alaska. We had, you know, once again, no jobs, no prospects of jobs. There was no house, no well, no nothing except a bunch of hand tools. And we had to figure out how to survive in this place economically because the world won't let us go away and how to develop a permaculture farm where we're producing staple food crops for people. They're carbohydrates, proteins, and oils in perennial agricultural ecosystems. And so that was 20 years ago. Was that long enough or short enough? 
like Goldilocks and Baby Bear, I'll say for now that that's just right, and we can explore <laughs> and expand on some of that through the rest of the conversation. I'm already looking at the three quarters of a page of notes that I have from those few minutes and everything that could develop from there. <laughs> at least we won't be bored. No. That impetus that you had about looking at some of the, the hypocritical ideas within permaculture is one of the things that I've been having a lot of conversations with people about. A lot of it came from my conversations probably about eight months ago at this point with Dave Jackie and then later with Larry Santoyo about how if we're really going to build these systems that are going to touch back to these core ideas of permaculture, the ethics and the idea of a permanent civilization within these concepts, that it's a lot more than just the garden or growing our own food. And I made a comment to someone that I felt was a little bit rude when I said it, was that many of the things that we talk about in permaculture and turning away from the world that is, is willfully ignorant of the needs of others and the ability to help them thrive and survive in a world of change, that to just take ourselves out of the society that exists kind of ignores some of the ethics that come with this system of design. And it's one of the reasons why I'm very interested in projects like yours that are very broad scale and are providing models that go beyond the garden. One of the things that I see with, with the scenario that you just painted as well is this removal from the system as it is isn't even complete. It's imaginary. Just because I plant a couple of berry bushes in my front yard and have a hugu culture bed, make a mud oven and an herb spiral, all of a sudden I can, you know, stand tall and proud and, and I'm absolved from all horrors that happen on planet Earth. I'm not even feeding myself, not even producing medicine. I'm not exactly like you were saying, not producing enough surplus yield to help others, not even paying my bills. So I'm still working at Target or, you know, Walmart or wherever else I've got, a, I've got employment at. So it's not even a real removal. I wouldn't object with permaculture so much if it actually did remove itself from this system. Well, when you do remove yourself from that system, which we really can't, it won't let us go, we have to create the next system. So I see what's uh, more important or as important as planting a few berry bushes in the suburban backyards. And don't get me wrong, every single urban and suburban backyard should be Larry Santoyo and Dave Jackied from gill to gill. I want to see all of that everywhere. And that's not enough. That's the nibble snacks. That is the place where we can probably produce the highest quality vitamins and minerals that we can get for our nutrition. However, we still need the bulk calories, uh, the carbohydrates, proteins, and oils that we currently get from our rice or beans or corn or wheat. And if you look at our rice, beans, corn, and wheat, they're all annual plants. In order to grow annual plants, you have to destroy a perennial ecosystem, a forest, a prairie, plow it all up, expose the dirt, throw a couple of hard seeds on it. Three months later or four months later when your crop is finished, you harvest the crop, and at best a cover crop is put on, which never really grows into anything and it's just plowed under again. So what's happened is currently right now, even permaculturists, the best permaculturists in the world, are deriving the majority of their calories by destroying ecosystems planet-wide. That's what has to stop. What we have to do is make real change, and it's not easy bit-piece changes that need to happen. We need a, a fundamental redesign of the entire culture, and that starts with me because I can at least have some modest amount of control over my own life 
And so where I want to start first is the one where I have the most ecological impact, and that's with my food. And so to make a choice, everybody makes a choice every day when we choose to eat. There are some cultures where you're just happy to eat. In America, at least, we choose to eat. And once we start to choose to eat only perennial plants or animals that were raised in their natural habitats, i.e. cattle grazing on grass, chickens outdoors, and so on, once we make that dietary change, now we start making the links to who is producing my food, how are they producing my food. Are they producing my food by plowing up the ground every single year? Are they producing my food by spraying herbicide wall-to-wall, treetop tall? Now we start to impact large acreages of the planet as more and more people in their urban and suburban areas derive their sustenance from perennial systems. More farmers will produce more perennial crops because it pays. And that word pay is kind of important because currently right now we do exist within an economy, whether we like it or not. It may or may not be inherently evil, but it is what it is. And even those of us who despise it to the core still have to play by its rules because it's in charge. So we have to set up permaculture operations that really do provide food, fuel, medicine, and fiber for people, for real, you know, no joke. We really do provide food, fuel, medicine, and fiber for people, and we do so in such a scale and manner that we can pay our bills and have a little profit left over so we can buy a canoe and paddle around in a lake with our kids. I live on one of the best cold water trout streams in Pennsylvania, so I I watch people try to canoe down the shallow waters here, and occasionally there will be kayakers who have success. So, And it's probably not quite the same as what you would have with a deeper stream or lake where you are. Which, which river are you on? I am on one of the tributaries to the Susquehanna River. I can hear the banjo music already. It's quite nice, but it is stocked with non-native trout because of the fishermen and the sport fishers, and there's a dam and all kinds of other things here that have their own problems. But when we're looking at broad-scale agriculture, I'd like to talk about some of the the work that you're doing and the techniques over the last 20 years of where you are. But I'd also like to ask you, one of the things that I advocate for people who are looking to have an impact for their food choices is to get to know their farmers and shop at their farmer's market, at least as a place to transition from so that they know what is happening with their food and get to meet the people who are producing it and that there's a direct impact between the dollars from the consumer into the farmer's hand. What are your thoughts on that as a way to transition? Is it not enough at this point? It's nowhere near enough. And the image that comes to mind, first of all, too bad this wasn't a visual image because I'd, I'd be able to like prance around for you. Now, imagine what happens at most farmer's markets. People are walking around and maybe they have one or two little bags that they're delicately holding up to show that, look, I bought one or two little bags. And they're visiting with everybody. Farmer's market is an incredible social event, real social event. That's not where people shop. Yeah, you buy some food there. Where people shop is they wallow into the grocery store and they get this humongous cart, four foot wide and six foot long, and they start waddling down the aisles and just pulling stuff off the shelves and putting it in their cart. And when they get out to the end of the checkout, it's, you know, several hundred dollars worth. That's shopping for food. There's a difference between food and social time and gardening and fun and education. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying that what 
permaculture needs to do is step out of the social fun realm, stay there, you know, but, but also step out of it and now start producing the food. Because when we start producing huge quantities of food, most people in this country live in cities of, you know, urban areas of more than 250,000 people. That's like 80% of all Americans, that's where they live. Where do you get your food? Well, what we need to do as permaculture farmers is now get our products into those stores where you're buying food, you know, throwing it into your carts. Because every time you pick up a package or a label, that's an advertising opportunity, that's an educational opportunity that we permaculture farmers can have. Every time you pick up a bottle of Shepherd's Hard Cider in the marketplace, even if you are a total non-greenie, you have to read the little greeny message that we put on the back of it because we're telling the truth. This is how we produce our fruits. This is how we produce our cider. And this is how we get it to market. By growing products to scale, then having successful food businesses where we're selling products in the real stores, not just $130 worth of zucchini on Saturday, but like pallet quantities every single day throughout the whole season. Now we have a real educational opportunity because you can't escape the fact that every night you sit down for dinner, hopefully, and you tear open some sort of package with some sort of food in it. And every time that package goes out, it's going to have our permaculture message on it because we are, this is how we are producing foods now. And this is how foods need to be produced in the future. So I think that's the real educational opportunity. Did I successfully avoid answering your question again? Perfectly. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> How that ties in is when we first moved to this part of Wisconsin, it was somewhat coincidental that right up the road, there was this young little upstart produce cooperative that just got started. It originally started with 60 members, and it went through a slow collapse as the economic model didn't work. And by the time we joined, we joined on the second wave of new members to this co-op. We were grower number 25. This is the organic farmers cooperative that now is most known for the Organic Valley line of products. We started when, when I first got there, produce was $30,000 in annual sales. And since that time, it's not only produce, it became dairy products and eggs and meat and citrus juices. And as of last summer, this is only 20 years now from when we first joined. In 20 years, we went from a tiny little company where we could all sit around two picnic tables feel good about our votes and all that kind of stuff. It was a billion-dollar business last summer. So that's what I think needs to happen with permaculture, is we need to come up with the permaculture aggregation collaboratives where we aggregate a distributed set of products, nuts and fruits and berries and herbs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. We aggregate these products, we do the basic processing to the products, and then we package them and then market those products and the producers, the actual farmers out on the land, are owners of the aggregation and marketing company. So as the aggregation and the marketing company grows and expands, we profit from its growth. So instead of the corporate model being seen as the evil monster that's you know terrorizing the planet, it now becomes a huge model to propagate its ideals. So if we have the, have the permaculture ideals, earth care, people care, and equitable system, the more profitable the company is, that means the more it's taking care of people, and the more it's taking care of the earth, and the more equitable its system is becoming. And as it profits, I all of a sudden have a retirement account. 
and I can retire with, uh, you know, a, a decent salary, you know, when I get too old to pick up zucchinis or too old to milk a cow. And that's what needs to happen in permaculture. To show that permaculture can be profitable within the current system and be able to help bring more people online to build these kinds of businesses, to grow these kinds of farms and make a living out of it rather than make a hobby out of it? Yeah, and I have a tremendous amount of patience for the people who are of the philosophy that, you know, that permaculture has to be free and that it's, you know, non-economical, it's an entirely new system. I have an imminent amount of patience because here's where every single one of those people falls flat on their face. Stop eating anything that comes from the industrial or the current economy. Everything. Stop now, today. And let's see who lasts longer. Someone who thinks this is a good idea, claims to have these high moral ideas, and yet is a total slave and a dependent on a corrupt and extractive system. Or someone who actually went out and said, wow, in order to do permaculture, I have to pay my bills somehow. So I'm going to set up a permaculture operation that qualifies as permaculture under every single tenet of the rule. And it actually earns me a little bit of money and it pays my bills, pays my mortgage. The equity investment in my property is going up. I have a, a good, healthy lifestyle, good, healthy children, lots of friends, family, community, and I'm still eating. 100% perennial, for real, no joke, no mud oven, no herb spiral. You've referenced the mud oven and the herb spiral two or three times now. Is there something about that focus on some of these techniques that gets to you having done permaculture farming for so long? Well, yeah, actually, specifically what it is. In no way do I mean to disparage those who have done that, okay? What happens is we have people right now all around the world, but especially in the industrialized countries, that have been raised in a system that has taught us to think in bits and pieces and pixels and sound bites. That's not the real planet. That's not the real solar system. That's not the real cosmos that we live in. The real cosmos that we live in is incredibly complex. It is a system of systems of systems of systems. And so we go to a permaculture course, which if, if you actually read the foundational material Permaculture 1, Permaculture 2, the Permaculture Designer's Manual, you'll see that what Bill Mollison was talking about is this is a system of systems for designing human habitation on this planet. So here we've got a bunch of people from the suburbs and cities that go to this course that's telling us to be systems thinkers, and we've been trained for you know, 18, 20, however many years old you are by the time you go to a permaculture course. We've been trained to think in bits and pieces there is one true answer. You go online, look out, what is the best spacing to put my apple trees? That's bit thinking. That's what we've been trained to think about. And so people go to these courses and they're like, oh my gosh, there's so much in this whole entire culture that needs to be changed. What can I grab onto? So they grab onto the simple little bit, something that I can do right here, right now, and they mistake the bit for the whole picture. So you, they mistake the hula culture bed as the one true answer. This is permaculture. They're mistaking the detail for the pattern. Whereas in permaculture design, we're supposed to think in patterns first and then design to the details. Whereas our culture, the current culture, teaches us all about the details. And so that's what most people have grabbed onto. 
And if you grab onto a detail that's in context, it has a very appropriate use. There's some clients I'm working with right now uh, out near you in Pennsylvania that they have a lot of ailanthus, tree of heaven. I like to call it tree from hell. It's really not all that useful. It's out of ecological context. It has no real natural enemies or pests currently right now. It's new. Some would call it, in quotes, invasive. Well, they have this huge issue with elanthus. It makes a lot of sense to cut the elanthus down, lay it linearly on the slope, put soil on top of it, so now you make a swale berm complex with the wood buried inside of the mound on the berm on the downhill side. Now you've done water management, you've done woody species control, and you've done this Google culture bed three steps in one. It makes a lot of sense to do it that way. Whereas this project right near me, all of a sudden, you know, the local permaculture group got all excited because they were given permission to put a hugel culture in a church yard between the parking lot and a subdivision nearby. What they did is they imported a whole bunch of logs from somewhere down the road. All these trucks had to bring in truckload worth of logs. They put them in a pile. They dug out all the soil. They piled it on top, and then they planted their raspberry bushes. What happened is First of all, it was totally out of context. Where did this wood come from? You had to cut logs from somewhere down the road and haul them in. That's ridiculous. That's dysfunctional. Then what they did not do is they did not calculate how much rain actually falls from the sky in this part of Wisconsin, how much surface area actually collects that water, the church roof and the parking lot. So what is the total volume of water that you need to manage? How big of a swale berm pond system do you need to build in order to manage that much water for real, no joke, in order to design the system. They just went in, they dug a ditch, they buried a bunch of logs that they hauled in, and the first big rain that came, you know, 350 million gallons worth of water came flying off that parking lot, filled up their swale, and it floated the whole hugel culture bed right through the fences in the backyards of a bunch of suburban residents, smashed down their fences and flooded out their backyards, causing a hell of a lot of property damage. That was bit thinking, disconnected from the larger system that it was a part of. They did extra work in order to accomplish something that they thought was the one true answer, and it wasn't even designed appropriately for the scale of what they were working with. It did not even acknowledge the fact that, you know, we can get a 10-inch rain in a 24-hour period, and you could float the Titanic on that much water. Can you see how there's a difference there? Between one was appropriate use in context, hugel culture bed. It made sense in that one system in Pennsylvania. Whereas in the other case, it made no sense at all. The mud oven makes perfect sense in Arizona. It's a perfect place to make a mud oven. In Vermont, where you get 45 or 50 inches of rain a year, you wouldn't believe the mud ovens that I've seen that they've made. This is permaculture, right? We make a mud oven. It's totally all natural. And then they have to make a roof over it so it doesn't dissolve the first time it rains. In Vermont, the appropriate use would be a stone oven. So instead of taking the details of permaculture design and calling that permaculture, we need to go to the pattern and then pick out the appropriate use with the appropriate detail in the appropriate location at the appropriate time with the appropriate resources that the people have available to them, and it's going to look different everywhere. There is no one answer. There's a million different answers applied appropriately. 
I, I haven't even railed on the rain barrel yet. Think about this. The rain barrel is an exercise in design failure. Oftentimes, I like to call it a design hallucination. A 10 by 10 impermeable surface, a roof, for example, will shed 62 gallons of water in a one-inch rain. So you put a 50-gallon rain barrel at the corner of your 40 by 40 house. A one-inch rain, you'll generate close to 1,200 gallons of water. It comes pouring off that roof, slams into your rain barrel, overflows the rain barrel. It goes down into your cellar, gets the carpet wet. The carpet, of course, is made all out of nylon fabrics. It gets black mold. The kids get asthma, and you have to go to Mexico to get medical treatment because your Obamacare doesn't cover it. This is a design failure. The rain barrel was not appropriately designed to the actual conditions of the actual site, which was a 40 by 40 roof with however much rain that falls. Three weeks go by, half of the water evaporates. Now you want to water your tomato plants because you are, after all, a permaculturist and you have tomato plants in your front yard. You only have 25 gallons of, of water left. You water a dozen tomato plants and then you're out of water. What about the rest of your yard? A more appropriate design approach to roof water coming off your roof, how big is your roof? How much is the average rainfall that actually falls on your site? That's the total possible rainfall that you can capture from your roof. Do the math, requires math. Now design a holding system that will actually contain all of that water and then a delivery system so you can take it from that holding location and use it in the places that you want to use it at. That might mean that instead of designing rain barrel systems, we're talking about designing swimming pool systems. And just as a side note, that story right there is my exact personal story because when we moved here to Wisconsin, when we decided that our house is going to be entirely rainwater capture, yay! One of the economic reasons why we wanted to do that is if we wanted to drill a well, it was about $50,000 deep. And we didn't have $50,000, but we could easily put a rain barrel underneath the corner and then use all that water. Well, we found out in a hurry that if you go wash your face and take a shower, that rain barrel is empty. And then we also found out that here we can literally get 10 inches of rain in an hour, so the 50 gallons was not big enough. So then we got a 1,500-gallon tank. Well, then we got a 3,000-gallon tank in addition to the 1,500, then a second 1,500, and it was at that point in time, it was like, whoa, 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 time out. This roof can capture and store about 20,000 gallons of water in a year, Doing this tanks and barrels thing is stupid and pointless. We should have, at the very beginning, at the very beginning, saved us all this trouble and all this expense, done the math, and figured out that we need a swimming pool in the backyard, bite the bullet, and build it, because that's what we need. That's the real permaculture for a real-world application. And by the way, our entire house is still it's entirely roof water catchment. All our water comes from the sky. And there you perfectly answered the unasked question in my original statement. I didn't know there was an unasked question. I thought you asked one. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is where, from our, the beginning of our conversation, when I asked the question and it didn't get answered, that I could be subversive and ask a different question and get the answer I was looking for. <laughs> Thank you, sir, for playing along with me through this interview. Well, and what's interesting, I, I like the use of the word play, all right, because you had originally stated in one of these questions that you get a lot of heat for bringing up the point. Well, I get a lot of heat in permaculture circles for bringing up reality. Uh, hello, this is not funny anymore. We get 20,000 gallons of water that hits our roof. A 50-gallon rain barrel is not an answer. It's a good idea to store our water from our roof. 
it is a hallucination to think that 50 gallons is going to do it. That's not going to do it. It's a hallucination to think that making a mud oven in your backyard in Vermont where it's going to dissolve and wash away is solving any problem for anybody anywhere. That's play, and it's time to amp up our game. It's time for permaculturists to get real. The real sun, the real wind, the real rain, the real water flow, the real soil, the real food. And I think I would like to challenge everybody right here, right now, 30 days. So 30 days with no annual grains or legumes in your diet. If you're a vegetarian, you're all tree nuts now, nuts and seeds. And then first people's reaction will be, but that's so expensive, you know, nuts are $6 a pound and rice is, you know, a nickel a pound. When you're eating food, we're not talking about pounds. We're talking about nutrition. And the dollars per nutrient, if you're buying nuts and berries and fruit, it's far superior. Actually, it's more nutrients per dollar if you're buying those perennial plants. So if you're a permaculturist and you really want to experiment to see if you really do want to be a permaculturist, start eating perennial plants. Right now, 30 days. And if if you can't go without annual grains and legumes for 30 days, I claim that you're, you're addicted. Most people say, no, 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 I'm not addicted. Well, that's proof because that's the first phase of addiction is denial. And if you claim that you're not addicted, show me that you're not addicted. Go 30 days without annual grains and legumes. Then after those 30 days go by, you know what? You'll feel so much better that you probably won't go back. Unless, of course, every once in a while it's for Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Don't get me started. Cheetos. Oh, my gosh. Cheetos. You're touching on, on some of those food addictions that I have. After having a conversation with a friend, uh, we went out and had lunch at a local authentic Mexican restaurant, and I ordered a soda, and he looks at me, he's like, really? Soda? And I was like, look, my two jags for food are barbecue potato chips and soda. And he just looks at me, what? But being able to admit that, I feel better. And all things in moderation, including moderation, you know, every once in a while, you know, there's nothing wrong with going out and splurging and having some of that stuff. You know, we don't need to be total monastics and deny ourselves of every pleasure in life. But once you start turning to like grass-fed, full-fat animal products, you know, the milk and the whipped cream on everything and bacon at every other meal, and you know, it's a different story. <laughs> and kale, you know what's interesting? We used to eat bushels of kale before it ever became popular. This is somewhat of an interesting fad that we're seeing. It's like, well, it's about time people realize that that stuff is really, really good. Well, and my wife have, and I have made the kale chips, and there's a wonderful kale soup that we make with sausage and potatoes that is just incredible and Ooh. comfort foods. Yeah, yeah. Then you start fermenting your own alcoholic beverages. I mean, who needs to go to Anheuser-Busch anymore? I've done plenty of that before I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder that means that I can't drink beer. Oh. My last batch was uh, my Christmas brew between Christmas and New Year's, a Russian Imperial Stout that finished at about 18%. And then I got to drink two bottles of it before my diagnosis, and they were rough, really rough. My friends drank the remaining 38 bottles, and it was as smooth as butter and as dark as sin. It was gorgeous, gorgeous beer. That's what I'm talking, a good life. And now, you know, most of, like, even beer culture in this, this country, yeah, the microbrews have made a little bit of a difference, but it's all Budweiser and Coors Light and Miller. It's something to go out on a Friday, Saturday and swill and drown your sorrows. Well, you know, this actually could be a source of great pleasure, incredible joy of sharing with friends. 
One little tidbit I find very fascinating. Did you know that in the British Isles, they were making beer before the Romans ever conquered the British Isles? Did you know that? I can't say that I did. Who cares, right? Well, did you know that the Scots were making scotch before the Romans ever invaded the British Isles? Who cares? Well, you know what beer was made out of? Hazelnuts. Where do you think the term nut brown ale came from? They made nut brown ale out of hazelnuts. What do you think the Scots were making scotch out of? Chestnuts. You know, we have a, an incredibly deep past culture of good food and enjoyment and pleasure, socializing with friends, and it doesn't have to be swilling this, like, flavorless alcohol-added pap on Friday and Saturdays and thinking it's beer. Ugh. We weren't going to talk about beer, though, were we? We were talking about permaculture. That still goes back to that idea that if we're going to build something that is permanent that people care about, there's more to, to having a culture than just subsistence that there's all this joy in art. Yep, there's more than empty calories. There's actually nutrition. There's more than just like food that you stuff your face with. It's pleasure. It's, it's sharing. It's, it's laughter with friends. It's music that we make ourselves on instruments that, you know, we made or friends made. It's a really deep, rich culture with time enough to enjoy ourselves instead of time to get up and make the donuts for boss man who has like has to buy another yacht in order to not pay taxes. Or I think of an experience that my wife created for our family just a few days ago as we're recording this was just for what seemed rather random or no reason. She's just like, all right, we're having candlelight dinner tonight. As the food hit the table, we turned off all the lights. You know, my children turned the lights off because they're young and we can't have them handling fire yet. My wife and I bring the candles over to start the evening and we sit and we had a relaxed candlelit dinner. And the joy that came from something as simple as that pleasure. The sparkling eyes and smiles around the table are just wonderful. But the candlelight dinner reminds me of another unasked question. Weren't we supposed to do this interview a few weeks ago? Yes. And what happened that we were not able to do that interview? Snow and weather and technology. And what happened with that? Did the power go out or something? Yeah, I had no power, no communication in order to connect with you in order to record this. So then that brings up to me a difference between talk about permaculture, blog about permaculture, pretend permaculture, and real-world permaculture, is if we are permaculturists, we have resilience built into our lives. We've designed it into the system. And if one source of power goes down, we've got another. If that goes down, we've got another. We have no less than four sources of electrical power. By design, we just designed it this way. And so what I would challenge you to do is all of a sudden get your backup systems in place. And you don't have to do it all at once because people are going to convince you that it's expensive. You can do it little by little by little by little. This is where knowing the difference between the details and the pattern is critically important. Because if you know that the pattern calls for this deep, rich, redundant systems, resiliency, and you know that it eventually is going to call for four different types of electrical generation, you'll start to work on the details of how to pull that together. You'll start working on the details now. But if you don't have the big picture in mind and you go do a hugel culture bed that's out of context and out of place, you've just created more work, it's out of sync. So that's some of your homework right now is to do some real permaculture and really have redundant systems and really produce electricity 
other ways than a nuclear power plant down in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, that blew up a few years ago and irradiated me when I was a kid. Evidently, that's what caused the brain damage that turned me into who I am today or whatever. My wife and I actually chose not to build those systems for when we lose them, that we prefer to live without them. That's a great way to, to see it, yeah. That's what I was wondering if that's where the candlelight dinner came from. All of a sudden, she had this brilliant idea. Let's have a candlelight dinner, and the kids are, well, okay. When my wife and I sat down and designed for disaster, we lose power so often, and because the lines are exposed, they're above ground, that we chose that we don't know what could happen to take that out for a long period of time. And it was because we had both lived in situations where we were more likely to be without it and adapting to that situation rather than building something where we needed it. What's really interesting is that that's a similar process that we talk with building our house here. And we've just had, it hasn't been the absolute coldest winter on record, but it's been the longest stretch of cold, like from November 1st until right today. Every single night has been below zero. It's a long stretch of cold. The frost depth is in some places in, uh, in this part of the state is like nine feet deep. And there are cities that are having everybody leave their water on all the time just so the pipes don't freeze. Well, the drain pipe that leads away from the sinks in the bathroom, it froze, froze solid. No big deal because we designed for this. We designed for the day that when, you know, the septic system doesn't work or pipes rot or deteriorate or whatever, you just kind of like flip this over here and now you just put a five-gallon bucket underneath and we're just going into the, the bucket technique. Since then, the pipes have thawed again, but we had the redundant systems in place so that we didn't even blink. You know, life didn't change. And that's very much where we're at by having adapted to these situations. And one of the big things for us wasn't having those systems in place, but being of a mindset that when we lose power, not to listen to the power company when we're getting the automated phone calls over the landline, you know, your power will return in four hours. Six hours later, your power will return sometime on the third Thursday of the fourth month after the full moon of the vernal equinox. And you're like, wait, but didn't they just say six hours ago that we would have it by now? That came from a situation where we kept hearing the reports, power will be back, power will be back. And it was three days later before we looked at each other and went, you know what, we just failed because we listened to them. And you depended on them, right? Right. And now that we're back into that mindset of, oh, look, we've lost power. Oh, look, we're flooded in or snowed in or don't have this, that, or the other. We respond to it and life doesn't change. That's a real comfortable place to be. Very much so. Being able to know that we have the cast iron and the wood to cook over a fire in the fireplace or outside or the charcoal to go to the grill or all these different things in place so we can continue to eat. We can still preserve food or go to the larder that has canned supplies, all that stuff. The games to play with the children, candles to be able to view by, batteries and all these other pieces that come together to make life still enjoyable. We've spent this time together talking about permaculture in a general and a specific fashion without talking a lot about your operations with restoration agriculture. What I'd like to do now is ask you for your final thoughts on what we've discussed over this past 45 minutes or so together, draw this section to a close, and then move into a place where we can have another conversation and discuss the listener questions, which will be released shortly after this current conversation goes live. Does that work? 
Yeah, I guess uh, what I'd like to address is funny because we're just like getting to know each other here and we haven't even really talked about the basic premises of restoration agriculture. And my elevator speech, I'll do what I can here. We have to go from the first to the 14th floor, but it's an elevator speech nevertheless, is that no matter where you live on planet Earth, there are plant communities that have lived there for zillions of years. They've been photosynthetically productive for zillions of years. They've not had any fossil fuel inputs, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, fertilizers, herbicides, no tillage for as long as they've been around. And there are plant communities within those systems that we can pick that go from tall to short, you know, further north and further south as you go into the Arctic regions. Tall isn't as tall as it is down in the tropics. There's multiple layers of these plants that all live together. As permaculturists, we don't have to invent guilds of plants that live with one another. Nature has already solved these problems over the past zillions of years. All we have to do is look on the ditches on the side of the road and look at wild areas, natural areas, and see what the plant species are. Now, on a farm scale, plant them in rows. Perhaps we plant tall over shorter, over shorter, over shorter, all in the same row, or perhaps we plant a row of tall, a row of medium, a row of short. We include vines in the system. We include shade tolerance in the system. We include the decomposition processes, fungus, and whatnot in the system so that what we've done is we've imitated natural ecosystems with the plant communities that we choose. We grow our regular crops, what we've been growing before, whether they were you know, corn and beans, wheat, rye, or pasture for grazing. We grow that in between the rows of trees. And so we're growing trees and our regular farm crops and restoration agriculture the goal is to accomplish ecosystem restoration, you know, ecological restoration, simultaneous with agricultural commodity crop production, and that's your carbohydrates, proteins, and oils. And preliminary research has shown that already in such simple systems that we're planting, that we're able to outfield corn on total calories per acre, not as much as I'd wanted to, but we're able to outyield corn total calories per acre. And the nutrition per acre, corn doesn't even stand a chance. And if you were to eat corn as your food or just corn and beans as your food, that's not enough nutrition. You'll need vitamin supplements. You'll suffer all kinds of deficiency diseases. Whereas a restoration agriculture system with five to seven different perennial woody plants as your staple foods, then all of the grass-fed animal products, five or six different species of livestock running through the system, what you end up with is potentially 10 times the total number of crops per acre with higher yields, and it's fossil fuel-free, no pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, disease control, none of that. So the, the goal is ecological restoration simultaneous with agricultural production at scale so we can actually feed people. Well, thank you for your 14-story your elevator pitch as an introduction to the idea of restoration agriculture. We'll draw this section of the conversation for a close, take a short break, then you and I will come back and continue that discussion with some listener questions, which the listeners will hear a couple weeks after this interview. Very good. And that was Mark Shepard. I found this interview and the other time I spent with Mark delightful and challenging. He asked hard questions and proposed solutions that at first glance seemed difficult but that ultimately are necessary to do this work, to restore the world, to practice permaculture in a meaningful way 
and get beyond the feel-good actions of a little here and a little there. The potentially unstable future posed by weather weirding and climate change and energy descent and questions of food security require action now. As part of that, and because I don't believe in asking anyone to do something that I wouldn't or haven't done, I'm going to take up Mark's challenge to eat a diet free of annual grains and legumes for 30 days. Actually, I'm going to be doing 31 days from August 1st through the 31st, 2014 as a start on this journey. Will you join me in this process and see what the experience is like in a world of mass-produced foods and perceived scarcity? Together we can show the possible abundance that lurks beyond the shelves of our local supermarket or big box store. From here and this conversation with Mark, expect a month or so to pass until the next of these pieces is released, and then the final one will come out probably late September or early October. Also, I'd like to let you know about a series of online discussions that Jen Mendez at Permi Kids is holding via Google Hangouts. She's calling these Edge Alliances. This is a way for permaculture practitioners and educators to come together and discuss ideas, share experiences, ask questions, and propose solutions. Coming up on Sunday, July 20th, she is examining self-empowerment and self-defense with children. And on Sunday, July 27th, the conversation will look at forest schools as a model for childhood education. You can find out more about these at permikids.com slash community hyphen collaboration. From there, if you're interested in the open enrollment ongoing online Permaculture Design Course Plus, please let me know. There are spaces still available. I'm also looking for sponsors for the rest of the episodes of this year. So if you're interested, get in touch. From anything you've heard in this episode, be they questions, comments, or just wanting to talk permaculture, let me know. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. You can also join in the conversations that are being had at facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast or follow the show on Twitter where I am at permaculturecst. That's going to bring this episode to a close for now. Until the next time, spend each day creating a better world by taking care of the earth, yourself, and each other.